the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Well, today is our special Thanksgiving program, and I wanted to begin with a few verses of Scripture that remind us that Thanksgiving isn't just a national holiday. It is a state of mind, or at least it ought to be, for those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker." Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. And it is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Well, today is a national holiday. It was designated so by our founders some years ago. It was a tradition that started way back in 1621, and although it's become somewhat controversial as to how we ought to approach it, it is an opportunity for us, especially those of us who are followers of Christ, to think about one of the things that we are called, we are commanded to do, and that is to live with thankful hearts, that gratitude should flow from us if we are aware of who God is and what he has done for us. So today's program, we're going to focus on the history and some of the events that took place surrounding this national celebration, expressing Thanksgiving, but also what it means to be a follower of Christ and what our standing orders are. You'll find them in the gospel, and we're going to talk about it right here today on The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. I hope you have plans to spend or are spending some quality time with family and friends and community and just enjoying an opportunity for a meal together and to reflect on the goodness of God and to cultivate thanksgiving and gratitude. First Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, we might imagine it's fairly simple to do that when we're, you know, sitting around the table one day a year with people we may or may not like to spend time with. 
We can maybe pull that off, be joyful for a day, to um, be prayerful throughout that day, giving thanks in that particular circumstance, even though things may not turn out quite the way you anticipated. For we know that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 16, 7, 18, verse chapter 5. Well, writing over um, 100 years ago, Professor James Denny, he was from Scotland, he called these three commands the standing orders of the gospel. They are standing orders because they always apply to every Christian in every situation. Now, I pause because you might be thinking about a particular situation or maybe a set of situations to which this cannot apply. How on earth could I be joyful in the midst of that or pray when this is happening or giving thanks in every circumstance? Hmm. Well, the Greek makes this very clear because these imperatives are all in the present tense. It's not what you do yesterday or did yesterday or do tomorrow. It's what we do always. You could translate it continually rejoice, continually pray and continually give thanks. Wow, that's a tall order. It's a great challenge. After all, we would have no problem if the text read something like, I don't know, rejoice sometimes. Pray when it's convenient, you know, occasionally, and give thanks when you feel like it and things are going well. It's the modifier that trips us up. Always, continually, in all circumstances. Well, this suggests that the real impact of the gospel will be seen when we don't feel joyful, when we don't want to pray, when it doesn't come naturally to us, and when we think of reasons not to be thankful. That's when we discover if our Christianity is the genuine article or a spiritual counterfeit. These, well, not so simple commands reveal the true life changing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he enters a life, he changes it from the inside out so that we have both the power and the desire to rejoice, to pray and to give thanks, even in the worst moments of life. Now, thankfully, we don't generate that out of our own self-will. We have been given the Holy Spirit to guide us in all of these areas. And it's only possible that these things could be found in us through the work of his spirit in us. But I wanted to take a moment to look at these standing orders as we stand on the uh, in the middle of Thanksgiving in which we ought to be joyful and pray prayerful and full of Thanksgiving. Some of the translations for the first, rejoicing always, be cheerful no matter what. Yeah, I don't know if I can do that. Rejoice always. Well, maybe sometimes. Be full of joy at the time, at all times. Be happy in your faith all the time. Those are different translations. The last one being uh, the Phillips translations. Do you know the shortest verse in the New Testament? Well, lots of people think it's Jesus wept. That's found in John eleven thirty five. but that's only true in the English version. In the Greek text, it's rejoice always. That is the shortest verse, and it's one of the more significant. Whenever the gospel is preached, it is a joyful sound to those who hear it. Is this not one reason that the unchurched have so little use for our Christianity, having lost the sense of joy in the gospel, showing so little by the way we live? Why would anybody else want to listen to what we have to say? Now I'm generalizing, but you get the idea. Perhaps preachers would do well to assess our own, well, walk, their sermons, and ask, where is the note of joy? If the gospel is truly good news, and it is, then we ought to rejoice and be glad. The first proof of the gospel's power for most people will be what they see in us. 
For every argument a preacher may make or for every beautiful song that may lift the spirit, none of it has the impact of a life full of joy all the time. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. John fifteen eleven, Because it works from the inside, joy doesn't depend on whether or not I have a job or a paycheck or how my friends have treated me. Much less does it depend on my health or state of my marriage or how my children are doing. Even less does it depend on who is in the White House or how my favorite team is doing or how the stock market is doing. Is that bare repeating? I think maybe so. It doesn't depend on my health, the state of my marriage, how the children are doing. It depends, depends rather even less on who's in the White House, how my favorite team is doing, or how the stock market is doing. Some Christians seem to think that they have a sacred duty to be, well, for lack of a better word, gloomy. Hmm. Sometimes they're called dill pickle Christians who go through life acting like smiling is somehow a sin and laughter an abomination. So they certainly do not want to engage in either. But that's not the religion of the Bible. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That's way back in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 8.10. And a cheerful heart is good like a medicine. Proverbs 17.22. Spurgeon said it this way. Oh, dear friends, you may rejoice. God has laid no embargo upon rejoicing. He puts no restriction upon happiness. Do believe it. Uh, do believe it that you are permitted to be happy. Do believe that there is no ordinance of God commanding you to be miserable. When we present our faith as dull, dry, boring, free from emotion, when we give the impression that knowing Christ means becoming a boring religious person, who can blame the younger generation for rejecting the gospel? No, it's not quite that simple, but you get the idea. Only in that case, it, it's not the gospel that they've rejected, but perhaps it's the pale imitation they get from us. Well, the gospel, Jesus said, is like new wine. If it doesn't make our faces shine, it is because we have not tasted it. So we should pray for shining faces and a new appreciation of all that God has done for us. If we only had eyes to see, we would find reasons to rejoice everywhere. I was reminded of a scene from the final episode of the miniseries on the life of John Adams, which I would highly recommend if you haven't already seen it. In this last um, uh, episode, this final episode, he's now almost 90 years old, having outlived his beloved wife, several of his children, and all of his contemporaries, except for Thomas Jefferson, and that's a story in and of itself. His health is failing. He moves very slowly. Yet on a sunny day in Peacefield, his Massachusetts farm, John Adams takes a walk on a country lane with one of his sons. I am not tired of life, he says. I still have hope. Pausing to catch his breath, he bends over slightly. It's time to go home, father, his son tells him. Leaning on his son's shoulders, Adams said, again, uh, nearly 90 years, uh, 90 years old, Adam grabs his son's face and laughs. Rejoice evermore, he says. It's from St. Paul, you fool. Then spying a tiny blossom, he adds, I have seen the Queen of France bedecked with millions of dollars in jewelry. But I tell you, pointing with his walking stick to the tiny blossom, there is more beauty in that flower than I ever saw in the court of France. As Adams turns to slowly walk back to the house, he says, Abigail often told me I needed to appreciate the beauty of small things more than I do. She was right. Now I find that if I look at the smallest thing, my imagination begins to roam the Milky Way. Rejoice. Always.
It's a difficult thing, and yet we're told to be cheerful no matter what, to be full of joy all the time, to be happy in our faith all the time. Then there's that other praying without ceasing. We'll get into that in just a few moments on this Thanksgiving day as we reflect on what it means to live with gratitude and thanksgiving, not just one day, the national holiday by the same name, but every day because we have been with him. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this day of Thanksgiving. One of many, I hope, in the life of the believer. We're reflecting on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, in which, as Professor James Denny of Scotland, he referred to these three commands as the standing orders of the gospel. They are standing orders because they always apply to every Christian in every circumstance. The uh, Greek makes this very clear because these imperatives are all in the present tense. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We've talked about being cheerful, rejoicing always, but what about praying without ceasing? If you've got kids, if you're a caregiver, if you've got a job, how on earth can you pull that one off? Never stop praying. That's how the Phillips translation puts it. Pray all the time, says the message. Of the three standing orders, this one causes the most problems. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Should every thought and every spoken word be a prayer directed to the Lord? And if so, how on earth do we communicate with one another and do whatever else needs to be done? Should every thought and every spoken word be a prayer directed to the Lord? In a sense, of course, the answer is yes. If prayer is viewed broadly, then our life itself ought to be a prayer offered to the Lord. And that certainly is one part of the answer. A speaker years ago compared praying with, uh, without ceasing to a net used to catch fish. When a net functions properly, it lets the water flow through while catching the fish. But if there is a hole in that net, the fish go three, uh, free. Uh, the same is true when we pray. There are to be no holes in our prayer net. This means praying often and in a deliberate fashion. It also means staying in communion with the Lord so that we don't have to suddenly change in order to begin praying. Our default spiritual condition should be, oh God, dot, dot, dot. It's like having a phone connection open 24 hours a day so you don't have to punch numbers. You just start talking. We stay in a state where uh, we can pray all the time, everywhere, about everything and anything. There's nothing we face, no duty too small that it would be, well, it not be improved upon by our prayers. We are to pray consciously, deliberately, repeatedly, persistently. And the most amazing aspect of all of this is that we have been given access 24-7 to the throne of grace. We don't have to make an appointment. We don't have to be squeezed in. We don't have to wait in line. We are invited to come, and the immediacy of his presence is always available to us. As we face each new challenge, as we celebrate, as we simply want to, in obedience, pray all the time. If this seems too much, then simply think of what it means when we forget God and leave him out of the affairs of our daily life. There's some frustration and irritation, a lack of peace, confusion, Short tempers, weariness, discouragement, and you could go on. I could go on. But when we invite God into our daily agenda, then there is peace and a sense of knowing that the sovereign Lord is guiding us and helping us along the way. What an amazing thing that that is the case. 
one pastor um, whose name I cannot recall, I'm trying to remember, but maybe it'll come to me, uh, took a quick trip to Chicago to speak at a funeral of a dear friend, John Sergei, who died at the age of 91. Uh, he would be missed because um, of his prayers. Now, one would assume that this is a man who has a ministry of praying, and that's essentially what his life uh, was boiled down to. He had a voice like the voice of God, and when he prayed, he brought the whole church into the presence of God. He loved to pray, and he prayed all the time, and when he had finished praying, no one else wanted to pray. If I had to pray, I always wanted to pray before him, not after him. Well, one day he showed his uh, showed his prayer list to the pastor, written in his own hand. The, la- the list, rather, was very long because it included his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, his many friends in America, the many pastors and Christian workers he had befriended and taught during his 60-year-plus years as a missionary in Russia. When uh, looking at the list, the pastor said that he had written Pastor Ray and Marlene near the top of the list, behind only his family members, shortly after... Um, Moving to the area where the pastor was uh, ministering, uh, this friend called to see how they were doing, to say that he loved them and assured them of his continued prayers. At one point, he mentioned that every night before going to bed, he prayed through his entire prayer list. It must have been a mile long, he said. Then he added these words. When I come to your names, I feel warmed in my heart as I think of you, and I feel as if I can meet you at the throne of grace. Well, during the funeral service, The pastor of uh, Temple of the Gospel in St. Petersburg, Russia, spoke of his influence. I have known many great men, leaders of all varieties, great pastors and spiritual leaders from around the world. Over the years, I have known hundreds of leaders, but very few of them want to pray. They all talk about prayer, but very few take time to do it. John Sergei loved to pray. To him, prayer was simply talking to his Heavenly Father. Later, Uh, Another pastor addressed the family seated in front of him. You are John's children, his grandchildren, his great grandchildren. I tell you the truth. You are what you are and where you are because of your father's prayers. Now think about that for a moment. You live for 91 years. You witness the rise and fall of empires. You build a ministry. You preach via shortwave radio for decades. You establish churches and train pastors. You work tirelessly for the church in Russia. And what do they talk about at your funeral? Your prayers. Not all of us can do what this particular man did as a missionary, but we can all pray. Lord, I want to be that sort of follower. Teach me to pray and give me a heart for prayer so that when I am I'm gone, people will remember that I prayed for them. Amen. Not just promise to pray for them. One of the things I have enjoyed having my mother live with my husband and me is to witness my mother's prayer life that has expanded exponentially. My mother prays without ceasing. Now, she, like 91-year-old um, Sergei, uh, is in her uh, latter years, and she has much more free time. Um, but obviously, there are lots of things that can occupy your thoughts and your uh, your time, even when you are retired. My mother chooses to pray without ceasing. Sometimes I'll walk down the stairs into her apartment, and I hear her talking, and I'm thinking, okay, should I be concerned And then if I stand and linger for just a moment, I realize she is praying. Sometimes I hear my name. Sometimes I hear my siblings, friends that we have known, circumstances that she's been made aware of. My mother prays without ceasing. And what a tremendous example she is to me. A busy woman who works full time and is her caregiver, married and is involved in ministry from time to time, to pray without ceasing. There's no formal declaration. There's no salutation. She just begins to speak to God because the channel is open 
and she prays. Now, the third of these standing orders of the gospel, one might find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Oh dear, give thanks in all circumstances? Perhaps I need a different translation. Surely it cannot mean give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, that's precisely what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 says. Be thankful in every circumstance. Now, it doesn't say be thankful for every circumstance. Uh, there are tragedies that occur, and it's not saying that we need to be thankful that you were in a serious accident and uh, there were major injuries. You're not thankful for it. But in the midst of every circumstance, 1 Thessalonians suggests, the Word of God says, we are to be thankful. Philip's translation, be thankful whatever the circumstances may be. The NLT, be thankful in all circumstances. The CEV, and I'm not even sure which translation that is, whatever happens, keep thanking God because of Christ Jesus. This is the will of God concerning you and I. And perhaps this is one of the more challenging of these uh, these three standing orders of the gospel, to be thankful in every circumstance. Now, the question revolves around the expression in Every circumstance, we know that we should give thanks when things are going well. I don't have any difficulty at all when things are going well, expressing my thanksgiving with exuberance. What about when things are not going well? We're going to talk about this third standing order of the gospel when we return, again, drawing from 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 on this Thanksgiving, a national occasion in which we are called to express our thanksgiving for the Manifold blessings we of a nation have enjoyed, but it also is an excuse and a reminder for us that we as followers of Jesus are to live with thankful hearts, always, always rejoicing, always joyful, praying continually and giving thanks in all, in every circumstance. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show for our special Thanksgiving edition of the program. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. We're talking about what it means to live a life of Thanksgiving expressed through being joyful, praying continually, and giving thanks in all circumstances as found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Professor James Denny, who wrote over 100 years ago in Scotland, he called these three commands the standing orders of the gospel. They are standing orders because they always apply to every Christian in every circumstance. The Greek makes it very clear because these imperatives are all in the present tense. You could translate it, continually rejoice, continually pray, and continually give thanks. Now, that's a challenge for us, and certainly on our own, we could not even approach uh, walking that out. But thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit that gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So there's hope even for those of us who uh, fumble through some of these um, imperatives. Be thankful in every circumstance. Again, the Phillips translation reads, be thankful whatever the circumstance may be. The NLT, be thankful in all circumstances, and the CEV translation, whatever happens, keep thanking God because of Christ Jesus. Now, the question revolves around the expression, in every circumstance. We know that we should give thanks when things are going well. It is uh, right and good to praise God for whom all blessings flow. We shouldn't take our blessings for granted or think that we somehow deserve them. 
that if you only give thanks when you have money in the bank, when your marriage is good, when the deal goes through, when the doctor says you don't have cancer, when your kids are doing well, when the church is growing and your friends are glad to see you, if that's the only time you give thanks, what will you do when trouble comes? And I can promise you, trouble will come. What will you do when your company downsizes and you're out of a job? When your retirement fund loses 45% of its value, when your marriage collapses, when your daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock, when the cancer returns, or when your friends betray you. In those very hard moments, we need to learn to return to God whose love for us does not change. Hmm. When you're on a flight, you can rise above the vast cloud bank that stretches from one horizon to the other. Underneath those clouds, no one could see the sun, but it is there. Above the clouds, the sun is shining brightly. Sometimes the clouds of life seem to obscure the face of our father, and we think he has abandoned us. But above the clouds, above the dark circumstances, the sun of his love shines forever. It is unchanged. Often things happen to us and to our loved ones that make no sense to us at all with our limited capacity to understand, to know uh, uh, the context and what's happening. Uh, Try as we might, we cannot trace God's hand in every circumstance because God paints on a canvas that's much larger than our tiny vision. How do we give thanks when our hearts are broken? How do we give thanks when we are confused? How do we give thanks when we're angry at what sin has done in the world? Well, it's biblical to give thanks in uh, even the worst moments. We give thanks that God is sovereign. We give thanks that nothing happens by chance. We are thankful because God causes all things to work together for the good of his children. All things. We give thanks because that hard times reveal our weakness, break our pride, show us our total need for him. We are thankful because God has triumphed over sin and death through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God uses the worst that happens to promote our spiritual growth. We're thankful that God is faithful, even when we are faithless, that God's word will be vindicated, that God's promises are true, that evil will not reign forever, that heaven is real, that this world is not the real world, that when we are weak, he is strong, that his grace is sufficient for every circumstance, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that our salvation rests on God And not on us, that there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin, that God delights to save sinners, that the Lord can soften the hardest heart, that there are no impossible cases with God, that even when we feel alone, we are never alone, that our father will not test us beyond what we can bear with him. That his Holy Spirit abides with us always. That the Lord Jesus feels our pain. That the Holy Spirit prays for us when we are too weak to pray for ourselves. That the Lord Jesus intercedes for us so that we are finally saved. That God uses everything and wastes nothing. That our doubts cannot cancel God's work in us. That someday we will be conformed to the image of Christ. That God is faithful to finish the work in us, his work, that our hardships equip us to do ministry to others, that we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace, 
that God's plans far exceed our puny imagination. That weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That we are still God's children, even when our faith falters. That while we suffer outwardly, we are being renewed inwardly. That our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Let me repeat that one. That our light and momentary troubles, though they seem much more than that, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. They only refer to in this, um, in this statement as light and momentary when they are contrasted with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. It is only then in that context do we recognize that they are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Be thankful in every circumstance. Eugene Peterson uh, says, thank God, no matter what happens, this is the way God wants you to belong to Christ, to live. The phrase, no matter what happens, because it perfectly describes life in the fallen world we find ourselves in. That phrase, no matter what happens, because it describes the fact that stuff happens, that bad stuff happens, that really bad stuff happens to some very good people. Even the happiest people know their share of sorrow, and some people seem to receive far more than their share of pain. We'll never be able to give thanks always without the Holy Spirit's help. Now, that helps us to embrace this um, passage of Scripture with hope and confidence. Left to ourselves, the pain of life will drive us to bitterness and ultimately to despair. But when we factor in Uh, We factor God into the equation when we rest upon the rock of his sovereignty, then and only then do we have the grounds for saying, thank you, Lord, no matter what happens to us or around us. I don't mean to suggest that it's easy, only that it's absolutely necessary. As hard as it may be to rejoice always, what is your alternative to give in to despair and anger? There's always that. If you refuse to give thanks in every situation, in every situation, you are virtually saying that you know better than God how to run the universe. By giving thanks when we don't feel like it, we're proclaiming that God's wisdom is greater than ours, that he can be trusted, that he is sovereign, that he holds the whole world in his hands, that he loves us and cares for us, and his word regarding his provision for us is true. That simple act of giving thanks in the midst of sorrow is a testimony worth more than 10,000 words spoken when things are going well. So the question is on this Thanksgiving, what is the will of God for your life? Now, you may wonder, Lord, you want me to be an astronaut or a school teacher? One thing we can know with certainty, because it applies to all of us at all times, it is the Lord's will for us to rejoice always. To pray without ceasing. In everything, to give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and for me and for James and for Clark and for all who name his name and are followers. This is the will of God for all of us. These three things will be more clearly seen in the darkness than in the light. So shine brightly. When times are tough, If you can still rejoice in God, if you can still pray, if you can still give thanks, then you've got the real thing. And even those who don't know Jesus will know that you know him because your light will shine brightly in the darkness. These standing orders of the gospel are not just ours for a day like today, Thanksgiving, when the whole nation 
whether or not they have the same thing in mind, are expressing some form of thanksgiving. Some are confused about to whom or whether or not that's something that can be done at all. But for those who acknowledge this is a national day of thanksgiving, we know that ultimately this is just one out of 365 in which we rejoice always. We pray continually. We give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus and because we know him. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this Thanksgiving. We're going to take a quick break and we'll take a look at well, what is Thanksgiving from a national standpoint? What's the history of it? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Thanksgiving day. Okay, I may be stretching that somewhat. It's beautiful in that it's an opportunity for us as a nation to express our Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving Day is, as I mentioned, a national holiday in the United States. And um, in 1621, the Plymouth colonists and the Wampanoag Indians shared an autumn harvest feast that's acknowledged today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations in the colonies. More on that later. For more than two centuries, days of Thanksgiving were celebrated by individual colonies and states. And it wasn't until 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, that President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day to be held each November. Now, isn't it interesting that during this very bleak period in our nation's history in 1863, in the midst of a war, not a war with a foreign power, but a war within the nation itself, that the president of the United States, who had lost his authority over half the nation, or at least the South, proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day to be held each November. Well, in September of 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers, an assortment of religious separatists. They were seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world. Well, after new to them, after a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing, one can only imagine it lasted 66 days. They dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod far north of their intended destination at the mouth of the Hudson River. One month later, the Mayflower crossed the Massachusetts Bay, where the pilgrims, as they were, are now commonly known, began the work of establishing a village in Plymouth. By the way, did you know, I don't know what's on your Thanksgiving table, but did you know that lobster, seal, and swans were on the pilgrims' menu? I don't know, are you planning on having seal Uh, With your turkey this year, I wouldn't mind having a little lobster, but chances are it's probably not going to be on the table. Well, throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship where they suffered from exposure, scurvy and outbreaks of contagious disease. Only half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. Only half. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they received an astonishing visit from Abenaki Indian, an individual who greeted them in English. Well, several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, a member of the um, uh, Pawtuxet tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Now, that's quite a history to then greet these new settlers who have come from a different land, although not that different. Uh, to settle there. Squanto taught the pilgrims, weakened by malnutrition and illness, how to cultivate corn, extract sap from maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wapanoag, 
a local tribe which would endure for more than 50 years and tragically remains one of the sole examples of harmony between European colonists and Native Americans. But for this snapshot in history, for this brief period, there was a a degree, a modicum of peace and harmony. Would that it could have been maintained, but the rest of that history will leave for another day. In November of 1621, after the Pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited a group of the fledgling colony's Native American allies, including the Wampanoag chief, Massasoit, now remembered as America's first Thanksgiving, although the pilgrims themselves may not have used the term at the time. The festival lasted for three days. Some of us, um, the hangover from our Thanksgiving meal lasts for three days, even though the festivities are long gone. While no record exists of the first Thanksgiving's exact menu, much of what we know about what happened at the first Thanksgiving comes from pilgrim chronicler Ed, um, Edward Winslow, who wrote, and I'm quoting, our harvest being gotten in, Our governor sent four men on fowling that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us and amongst the rest of their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men whom for three days were entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. End quote. Historians have suggested that many of the dishes were likely prepared using traditional Native American spices and cooking methods. And because the the pilgrims had no oven and the Mayflower's sugar supply had dwindled by the fall of 1621, the meal did not feature pies, cakes or other desserts, which have become a hallmark of contemporary celebrations. Can I get a praise God for that? I mean, would Thanksgiving be the same without pumpkin pie? I don't eat pumpkin pie unless we're in the middle of a Thanksgiving feast. I don't eat it before, and I might eat it a little bit after, but I live for that pumpkin pie. And as I've mentioned here before, that combination of food, the dressing and the turkey and the potatoes, the sweet and the mashed potatoes, though that combination of food is my all-time favorite. Um, so anyway, I digress. Well, pilgrims held their second Thanksgiving celebration in 1623 to mark the end of a very long drought that had threatened the year's harvest and prompted the governor, Governor Bradford, to call for a religious fast. Now, it's almost comical that he calls for a religious fast following a famine, but days of fasting and Thanksgiving on an annual or occasional basis became common practice in other New England settlements as well. It was an opportunity not only to... um, uh, express uh, gratitude, but to uh, demonstrate a Thanksgiving that was deeper than just saying thanks past the uh, the uh, turkey leg. Well, during the American Revolution, the Continental Congress designated one or more days of Thanksgiving a year. And in 1789, George Washington issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation by the national government of the United States. In it, he called upon Americans to express their gratitude for the happy conclusion of the country's war of independence and the successful ratification of the U.S. Constitution. His successors, John Adams, whom I referenced earlier, and James Madison also designated days of thanks during their presidencies. Then in 1817, New York became the first of several states to officially adopt an annual Thanksgiving holiday, each celebrated on a 
a different day. However, the American South remained largely unfamiliar with the tradition. In 1827, the noted magazine editor and prolific writer Sarah Josepha Hale, author, among countless other things, of the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, launched a campaign to establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday. For 36 years, she published numerous editorials, sent scores of letters to governors, senators, presidents, and other politicians, earning her the nickname, the Mother of Thanksgiving. Abraham Lincoln finally heeded her request in 1863 at the height of the Civil War in a proclamation entering all Americans, um, entreating rather all Americans to ask God to commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable uh, civil strife and to heal the wounds of the nation. He scheduled Thanksgiving for the final Thursday in November, and it was celebrated on that day every year until 1939, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved the holiday up a week and in an attempt to spur retail sales during the Great Depression. Roosevelt's plan, known derisively as Franksgiving, uh, was met with passionate opposition, and in 1941, the president reluctantly signed a bill making Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday in November. Well, in many American households, the Thanksgiving celebration has lost much of its religious significance, as you know. Instead, it now became the retail holiday that Franklin Roosevelt hoped it would be. (laughs) We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. We're on this Thanksgiving Day just talking about what it means to be thankful and what the tradition is in the history of this day of Thanksgiving uh, called for by American presidents over the years and really um, given birth by one woman who for 36 years insisted by writing and um, I suppose bothering those in positions of leadership and authority to establish such a date. We'll continue to tell you more about that. But first, we need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this very special Thanksgiving. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, our special Thanksgiving program today. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program, and we are glad to have you with us. Hope you're having a fine day of Thanksgiving, which is one of many that, if you are a follower of Christ, is a regular practice, being grateful and expressing and offering our Thanksgiving. Well, in many American households, the Thanksgiving celebration has lost, well, much of its original religious significance, if not all. Instead, it now centers on cooking and sharing a bountiful meal with family and friends. Turkey, a Thanksgiving staple so ubiquitous, has become all but synonymous with the holiday. May or may not have been an offering when the pilgrims hosted the inaugural feast in 1621, but I'm not going to complain. Today, nearly 90% of Americans eat the bird, whether roasted, baked, or deep-fried on Thanksgiving. According to the National Turkey Federation, other traditional foods include stuffing, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, and Mm-mm-mm. Pumpkin pie. Volunteering is a common Thanksgiving activity, and communities often hold food drives and host free dinners for the less fortunate. The Union Gospel Mission, for example, they serve meals to so many. Parades have also become an integral part of the holiday in uh, cities and towns across the United States. Presented by Macy's Department Stores since 1924, New York City's Thanksgiving Day Parade is the largest and most famous attracting some 2 to 3 million spectators along its 2.5-mile route, drawing an enormous television audience. It typically features marching bands, performers, elaborate floats, conveying various celebrities and giant balloons, 
shaped like cartoon characters. We've devolved to cartoon characters on Thanksgiving, but I always loved them as a kid. Beginning in the mid-20th century, uh, mid-20th century, and perhaps uh, even earlier, the President of the United States has pardoned one or two Thanksgiving turkeys each year, sparing the bird from slaughter and sending them to a farm for retirement. A number of U.S. governors also performed the annual turkey pardoning ritual. For some scholars, the jury is still out on whether the feast at Plymouth really constituted the first Thanksgiving in the United States. Historians have recorded other ceremonies of thanks among European settlers in North America that predate the Pilgrim's celebration. In 1565, for instance, the Spanish explorer Pedro Menendez Alvila, he invited members of the local um, tribe to a dinner in St. Augustine, Florida, after holding a mass to thank God for his crew's safe arrival. On December 4th, 1619, when 38 British settlers reached a site known as Berkeley, uh, Berkeley 100 of the banks, um, or rather on the banks of Virginia's James River, they read a proclamation designating the day a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. There is a consistent theme, whether or not the first, the second, or one of many. Some Native Americans and others take issue with how Thanksgiving the story is presented to the American public and especially to school children. In their view, the traditional narrative paints a sunny portrait of relations between the pilgrims and the Wampanoag people, masking the long and bloody history of conflict between uh, Native Americans and European settlers. As I mentioned earlier in the program, there was 50 years in which that relationship was all one would hope it to be. And it devolved from there. It certainly is true. But it does present to us this Thanksgiving celebration reflecting back to the history of a moment in time, a snapshot in which people behaved in a way that one would hope we would learn to behave with one another when our languages differ, when our traditions differ, when our appearances uh, differ, that we would be able to love or at least fellowship with one another. So point taken. But again, I don't think you need to undermine the celebration um, of that one singular occasion and others like it in order to uh, uh, to ex- acknowledge the validity of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving isn't a patriotic holiday per se, but it is full of patriotic feeling, as we've been uh, saying. Americas give thanks to their shared blessing as a nation, or not. Uh, the best expression of this aspect of Thanksgiving comes from um, when, from Benjamin Franklin, who called it a day of public felicity, a time to express gratitude to God for the full enjoyment of liberty, civil and religious. Just about every country has a national day, a holiday when citizens stop to honor their constitution or celebrate a monarch's birthday or recall their day of liberation from colonial rule. The United States isn't unique in celebrating its Independence Day, but Thanksgiving is something else. Only a few other countries set aside a day of Thanksgiving. Most of these are harvest festivals, celebrations that trace their origins back to when life beat uh, to the rhythm of the agricultural cycle. America's Thanksgiving holiday is something different. We live in a less religious age than did the pilgrims, but it would be a mistake to claim at some, as some do, that Thanksgiving is not religious. It is that rarest of religious holidays, one that all religions can celebrate. The pilgrims came to our shores seeking freedom to worship as they pleased. On Thanksgiving, Americans of all faiths and none of all, none at all, rather, um, can give thanks um, that they found it. Thanksgiving has grown up with the uh, country. Many of our greatest historical figures are associated with it. As I've mentioned, George Washington, who proclaimed our first national Thanksgiving amid controversy over his constitutional power to do so, and who included in his proclamation Americans of every faith, 
Abraham Lincoln, who wanted to heal a war-torn nation when he called for all Americans, North and South, to mark the same day of Thanksgiving. And Franklin Roosevelt, who set off a national debate when he changed the holiday's traditional date. Ordinary Americans played their part. Sarah uh, Josepha Hale, the 19th century magazine editor who championed to, or rather campaigned to make Thanksgiving a national holiday and was a champion. The New England Indians who boycotted Thanksgiving in the 70s, calling it a day of mourning. And the 92nd Street Y in New York City, which recently launched Giving Tuesday, following in the long American tradition of remembering the poor and needy around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving says a lot about Americans. It reflects our national identity as a grateful, generous, and inclusive people. At least we are aspirational in those areas. When an American takes his place at the Thanksgiving table or volunteers at a local food bank, he is part of a continuum that dates back to 1621, when the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians sat together for three days to share food and fellowship. The friendly coexistence between the English settlers and the Native Americans would last only a few decades longer, But that original Thanksgiving pointed the way to the diverse people we have become. Many aspects of the holiday are of interest, including the days of Thanksgiving in Florida, Texas and Virginia that predate, as I mentioned, the more familiar one in Plymouth and compete for the title of first. A now almost forgotten holiday called Forefathers Day, which influenced the modern Thanksgiving, the way in which football became part of our Thanksgiving uh, rituals, and of course, how it came to a pass that on the fourth Thursday in November, most Americans sit down to the same meal of turkey, cranberries, potatoes, and pie. The aspect of the holiday that Ben Franklin particularly admired is uh, certainly worth uh, mentioning. That is, uh, it is a time for expressing gratitude for the full enjoyment of liberty, both civil and religious. In doing so, we um, illustrate uh, from each of the centuries since America's original Thanksgiving from the 17th to the 21st, how we as Americans celebrate this occasion we were called to engage in together so many generations ago. There are two eyewitness accounts of the first Thanksgiving written by Pilgrim William Bradford and Edward Winslow. And although uh, we should stipulate that the word Thanksgiving doesn't appear in either of them, if you could uh, travel back to uh, rather 1621 and ask a pilgrim to define Thanksgiving Day, his answer might surprise you. For the pilgrims, days of Thanksgiving were not marked by feasting, family and fellowship, the happy hallmarks of the holiday we now celebrate, but by religious observance. They were called to express gratitude to God for specific beneficiaries and beneficence, such as successful harvests, propitious weather, or military victories. For the pilgrims and other early immigrants to our shores, a Thanksgiving Day was set aside for prayer and for worship. My, how we have strayed. From the pilgrims' perspective, their first Thanksgiving in New England took place two years after the event when we recall as... um, the first. It was July 1623, and the governor declared a day of thanksgiving in gratitude for rainfall that had saved their harvest. These religious days observed in all 13 colonies were the most direct influence on the development of thanksgiving as we celebrate it today. At some point in the 1600s, each New England colony began to designate annual thanksgiving days, usually in the autumn. These celebrations were deemed general thanksgivings, that is, they weren't called for a specific event or blessing, but for ordinary, everyday blessings. And they were usually designated by civil authorities rather than religious authorities. Connecticut was the first colony to name a specific day of general thanksgiving. That was in September of 1639. 
and make it an annual event. This decision was controversial and the subject of spirited theological debate. Opponents argued that an annual Thanksgiving for general reasons would lead people to take God's generosity for granted, sort of like we do today. But the idea caught on. Massachusetts was the last holdout, not following uh, Connecticut's lead until late in the 17th century. Moving to the 18th century, the story of the political controversy surrounding our first Thanksgiving as a nation speaks volumes about our civil and religious freedoms. We'll tell you more about that controversy when we come back, but we do need to take a break on this Thanksgiving Day. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Thanksgiving special. We'll take that quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Thanksgiving special. Hope you are having a wonderful day with family and friends. Hope you have the opportunity to spend some time in community. But if not, we're glad to have you with us this afternoon. We're talking about Thanksgiving and how it developed over the centuries here in the United States. As mentioned, Connecticut was the first colony to name a specific day of general Thanksgiving. That was September 18th, 1639, and make it an annual event. Well, this decision was controversial back then and the subject of spirited theological debates. Opponents argued that an annual Thanksgiving for general reasons would lead people to take God's generosity for granted. The truth is we didn't have to have an annual rather vague celebration of Thanksgiving for that to be the uh, outcome. We've certainly arrived there today, but the idea caught on. Massachusetts was the last holdout, not following Connecticut's lead until late in the 17th century. Well, moving on to the 18th century, the story of the political controversy surrounding our first Thanksgiving as a nation speaks volumes about our civil and religious freedoms. The controversy began on September 25th, 1789 in New York City then the seat of our federal government. The venue was the inaugural session of Congress. The senators and representatives had been meeting since March 4th at Federal Hall in Lower Manhattan and were about to take a well-deserved break when Representative Elias Boudinot, a New, New Jersey um, of New Jersey, rose to introduce a resolution. He asked the House to create a joint committee with the Senate to wait upon the President of the United States to request that he would recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. Well, he made special reference to the Constitution, which had been ratified in 1788, a day of public thanksgiving, he believed, would allow Americans to express gratitude to God for the opportunity peaceably to establish a constitution of government for their safety and happiness. Well, this resolution sparked a vigorous debate. There were two objections. The first concerned federalism. A a congressman from South Carolina argued that the federal government did not have the authority to proclaim days of Thanksgiving. That was among the powers left to individual state governments. Why should the president direct the people to do what perhaps they have no mind to do, he asked. If a day of Thanksgiving must take place, let it be done by the authority of the state. So was the argument. The South Carolinians' second objection was the Uh, that proclaiming a day of Thanksgiving is a religious matter and as such is proscribed to us. Uh, The Bill of Rights would not be ratified until 1791, but Congress had just approved the wording of the First Amendment, and the debate about the proper role of religion was fresh in everyone's mind. In the end, the resolution passed. It moved to the Senate, which quickly approved it, and on October 3rd, President Washington issued his now-famous Thanksgiving proclamation. He designated Thursday, November 26th, 1789, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. 
He did not decree a thanksgiving. Rather, cognizant of the limits of his power, he asked that the governors of the 13 states comply with his request. He also made it clear that Thanksgiving was an inclusive holiday, not just for Christians, but for Americans of every faith. The next president to designate a day of national Thanksgiving for general blessings was Lincoln. 1863. That's not to say Americans did not celebrate Thanksgiving during the intervening years. They did. By the time of the Civil War, just about every state had established an annual day of Thanksgiving. The holiday was celebrated by a day off from work, attendance at religious services, and usually a festive family gathering. The date was set by the individual governors, who sometimes coordinated, but usually didn't. The result was that while most states celebrated in November, a few marked the day in October and early December. The story of how Thanksgiving became a regular national holiday is itself a classic American story of how an enterprising individual with a good idea can have an impact. In this case, a penniless young widow from New Hampshire, Sarah Josepha Hale. I think it's important to emphasize a penniless young widow from New Hampshire. She rose to become the editor of the most popular magazine of her era, Godey's Ladies Book, and used that position to generate grassroots support for a national Thanksgiving. Mrs. Hale's genius as an editor was the focus uh, was to focus on American topics and American authors at a time when other magazines typically reprinted articles uh, pirated from English publications. She used every feature of her magazine, editorials, short stories, recipes, to encourage the celebration of Thanksgiving. At the same time, she conducted a letter-writing campaign to presidents, governors, and congressmen, and other influential figures. In 1863, in the midst of what is arguably the bloodiest year in American history, President Lincoln, inspired by a letter from Mrs. Hale, took the extraordinary step of naming a National Day of Thanksgiving. He called on every American, North and South, to celebrate Thanksgiving with one heart and one voice. Following Washington's example, he set Thanksgiving for the last Thursday of November. Lincoln's 1863 proclamation was the first in an unbroken string of annual Thanksgiving proclamations by every subsequent president up to the present day. And it uh, it is regarded rather as the beginning of our national Thanksgiving holiday. But there remained a snag. While the overwhelming majority of governors went along with the state proclamations with the dates that Lincoln and later presidents designated, they were under no obligation to do so. The president's proclamation had no force of law outside of the District of Columbia and U.S. territories. That would require an act of Congress. For that, the country would have to wait until 1941. In August of 1939, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, announced that he had decided to move Thanksgiving back a week from what had been by then become the traditional last Thursday of the month. The country was still in the midst of the Great Depression, and Roosevelt's reasoning was economic. There were five Thursdays in November that year, which meant that Thanksgiving, if celebrated on the last, would fall on the 30th and leave only 20 shopping days till Christmas. Moving the holiday to November 23rd would allow Americans more time to shop, and so the president's dubious theory went, spend more money, thus lifting the economy. Now these days... Uh, We see uh, Christmas decorations long before Halloween has come and gone. So I suppose we don't need the incentive of the president or a particular date for Thanksgiving. It is simply overlooked. But Roosevelt, usually an uh, astute politician, made the mistake at a press conference of saying there was nothing sacred about the date of Thanksgiving. He might as well have suggested that roast beef replaced turkey as the star of the holiday meal. His announcement was front page news the next day and the public outcry was swift and vociferous. 
We here in Plymouth, Massachusetts, consider the day sacred, the town's first selectman said. Plymouth and Thanksgiving are almost synonymous, and merchants or no merchants, I can't see any reason for changing it, end quote. College football coaches were apoplectic since most college schedules, uh, colleges scheduled rather their football seasons, which ended on Thanksgiving weekend well in advance. Alf Landon, FDR's Republican opponent in 1936, compared the president to Hitler. The date of Thanksgiving in 1939 became a political hot potato. Politicians in every state had to read public opinion, examine the local business climate, and consider political loyalties before deciding which date to endorse. In the end, 23 states chose to stick with November 30th, while 22 celebrated on November 23rd. Three states, Texas, Mississippi, and Colorado, decided to celebrate on both days. Ooh, two Thanksgiving meals, but I digress. It wasn't long before people started referring to November 30th as the Republican Thanksgiving, and November 23rd as the Democratic Thanksgiving, or as some had it, Franksgiving, Senator Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire asked sarcastically, has the president given any thought to abolishing winter? Well, in 1941, President Roosevelt admitted defeat and declared that Thanksgiving would return to its traditional date. Congress passed legislation fixing the date of all future Thanksgiving as the fourth Thursday of November, and FDR signed it into law. What a relief. Well, in conclusion, Thanksgiving is and has been and will forever be a tradition in the United States. Whether the majority of Americans are giving thanks, I cannot say. But it is an opportunity, and we have been called by our leader, the chief executive of the nation, to offer up our thanksgiving to God. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we recognize that not only on the occasion in 1621 when the pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians got along for a brief period of time, about 50 years, that we are called to express our thanksgiving on a daily basis, that we are to rejoice always because of the God of our salvation and the fact that he has given us his Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to do just that. For those of you listening in the Seattle area and want to hear the rest of the story, you can go to thewordseattle.com, kpdq.com, or go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page and look for the podcast. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and hope you'll join us here live again on Monday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Thanksgiving edition of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing and engineering today's program. Hope you're having a wonderful day of Thanksgiving and uh, rejoicing as we are called to every day. I did want to take just a few moments to offer some advice to those who are discontented because we live in an age in which that is sort of the accepted norm. It's the default position. Well, the truth is, ever since the beginning of creation, when the first creature came from the hand of God, there has always been someone somewhere unhappy with his position in the universe. It all started with an angel named Lucifer, the brightest star of the heavenly firmament, we are told, who was not satisfied to be the apex of God's creation. Can you imagine that? He wanted something more than his assigned position as the greatest of all created beings. His seething discontent caused him to lead a rebellion against the Most High. Fully one-third of the angels joined with him in his abortive quest to overthrow the throne of the Lord. For his rebellion, he and his followers were kicked out of heaven. Ever since that dark day, he has been known as Satan and the devil, and he's been the implacable foe of all of God's works. 
it is um, this it was rather discontent that made him do it. And discontentment has been one of his best weapons ever since. His earliest triumph came in the Garden of Eden when he sowed seeds of discontent in Eve's unsuspecting heart. By misquoting the Lord, he made Eve think that God was somehow trying to cheat her, to keep her down, to keep her from becoming like God. So Eve took the fruit and ate it. She gave it to Adam and he ate it. Thus, sin entered the human bloodstream. The seeds of discontentment brought forth the bitter harvest of disobedience, which led to the loss of paradise and the entrance of evil into our world. And ever since then, we've been an unhappy race. After Eden, we have never been fully satisfied with anything on earth. And we're still not satisfied thousands of years later. We always want something different. If we're young, we want to be older. If we're older, we wish we were younger. If it's old, we want something new. If it's new, we want something newer. If it's small, we want something bigger. If it's big, we want something, well, really big. If we have $100, we want 200 If we have $200, we want 500 If we have an apartment, we want a condo. If we have a condo, we want a house. If we have a house, we want a bigger house or a new house or a nicer house. Or maybe we want to scale down and live in an apartment again. If we have a job, we dream of a better job, a bigger job, a closer job with a bigger office, a better boss, a better benefits, more challenges, bigger opportunity, nicer people to work for and more vacation time. If we're single, we dream of being married. If we're married, well, you can finish that yourselves. None of this is unusual. We were born discontented, and some of us stay that way, sadly, forever. A certain amount of discontentment can be good for the soul. It's not wrong to have dreams about what the future might hold. The hope of something better drives us forward and keeps us working, inventing, striving, creating, innovating. But there is a kind of discontentment that leads in a wrong direction. Some of the signs that are dragging us down spiritually, what about envy? The inability to rejoice at the success of others uncontrolled ambition, the desire to win at all costs, no matter what it takes or who gets trampled in the process. What about a critical spirit, that tendency to make negative, hurtful, cutting remarks about others, a complaining spirit, that disposition to make excuses or to blame others or bad circumstances for our problems, refusal to take personal responsibility and the inability to be thankful for what we already have. And then there are outbursts of anger, angry words spoken because our expectations were not met. The discontented person looks around and says, I deserve something better than this. Because he's never happy and never satisfied, he drags others into the swamp as well. No wonder Benjamin Franklin declared, contentment makes a a poor man rich, discontent makes a rich man poor. Discontentment is the cancer of the soul. It eats away our joy, it corrodes our happiness, destroys our outlook on life, and produces a terminal jaundice of the soul so that everything looks negative to us. We can't be happy because we will not be happy. We cannot be satisfied because we will not be satisfied. So how can we overcome this debilitating debilitating condition? Jeremiah 21 contains some amazingly helpful insights about discontentment, even though the word itself is never used. You are where you are. Because God wants you there. Remember the background of Jeremiah 29. It is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to Jerusalem, or rather in Jerusalem, to the Jews who are exiled in faraway Babylon. They felt and were abandoned, rejected, unloved, discouraged, forgotten. How could they ever sing the songs of Zion while living in a pagan land? How could they ever find hope knowing that it was their own foolish choices that put them there? And how could they find the courage to go on when God had said, you will be in exile for 70 years? 
Well, to all of those concerns, God answers in the fourth verse of that chapter, 29 in Jeremiah. I carried you to Babylon. Here's one of the clearest statements of God's sovereignty in the Bible. And although the hated Babylonians had captured them behind the pagan army stands the Lord himself. Now you might be scratching your heads. How can that be? Aren't these God's chosen people? But the Lord says, I did it. Don't blame the Babylonians. They were merely my instruments to do my will. You sinned and brought this judgment on yourself, but I am the one who carried you to Babylon. How cruel is this? Well, to say it that way doesn't cancel human choices and the very real consequence of our sin. It does point out that things are not always as they seem on the surface. The exiles had vivid memories of the shock, the pain and the shame of being wrenched from their um, wrenched from their homeland and being carried away to Babylon. God says there is more going on here than you know. I warned you this would happen. You ignored me. And now what I said has come to pass. If you want to blame anyone, blame yourselves. Don't blame the Babylonians. They are acting on my command, though they did not realize it. Well, Solomon said it very succinctly in Proverbs sixteen nine. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. The Jews never planned to end up in Babylon. In fact, that would have been the last place they intended to go. But the Lord determined that would be their destination for the next 70 years. Is this any consolation? It all depends on what you believe about God. If you don't believe that God involves himself in the affairs of life, then it won't matter because you won't see his hand at work even in the darkest moments. But if you believe God is a God of details, then it makes all the difference in the world to know that he takes personal responsibility for allowing certain things to happen that you regard as catastrophes. Tony Evans says that everything in the universe is either caused by God or allowed by God, and there is no third category. And that's huge because many of us create a third category, something like really bad things happen for no reason at all. Well, that is not one of the categories. You are where you are now because God wants you there. It's hard to even say it, let alone believe it. You may be happy about your current circumstances or you may be miserable. Most likely you're somewhere in between. It doesn't matter. You are where you are at this moment because God wants you there. How do I know that? Because if God wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. And when he does want you somewhere else, that's precisely where you'll be. If God is God, that must be true. When God says, I carried you to Babylon, he wants his children to know that though they have sinned grievously, He's not forgotten them. He carried them to Babylon, partly as judgment and partly as a sign of his mercy. Again, you may be scratching your head. They certainly understood the judgment part. They would understand the mercy part later. But for now, it's a puzzle. Sometimes the most we can say is, I know I am here because God wants me here. I don't know why, but I know I am uh, not here by chance. It's a great uh, advance in the life of faith to be able to say that much, even if you can't say anything else. Verses 5 and 6 give us God's specific directions in the ex- or to the exiles in Babylon. It's definitely not what they expected, and it may not be what we expect in our challenge with being discontent and underestimating the destructive capacity of living in discontentment. As we mentioned, the originator of that life, of that uh, position, uh, has cr- created great havoc for us and certainly in heaven as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll find out what God says about um, this situation, his specific directions to the exiles in Babylon, and I think directions to us as well on this Thanksgiving as we purpose in our hearts to honor him in our hearts. 
in our minds, with our attitudes and our words. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Thanksgiving edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about, well, discontentment. There is such a word, I believe. We're talking about Jeremiah 29, in which God says, I carried you to Babylon, speaking to his children. And this was a, a puzzle to them. In verses 5 and 6, God gives us specific directions, or rather gives specific directions to the exiles in Babylon, and perhaps gives us some insight as well. In these verses, he says um, something that they do not expect and may be shocking to us as well. Here they are in exile. It's partially a judgment. It's partially a sign of his mercy. But God says to them, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Now, our tendency would be to wallow in our circumstance and just assume God has abandoned us. There is no possibility for fruitfulness now. But God's command is simple. Bloom where you're planted. You may not like where you are, but that doesn't matter. As... um, I have planted you in Babylon, he said at that time. Transplanted would be more like it. Go ahead and put your roots down. Buy some land, build nice houses, plant some gardens, go into business, build a community. In every hard situation, we have to face the same question. Are we going to complain or are we going to get busy? God says you are in Babylon now. Make the best of it. Don't complain. Don't mope. Don't spend your days pining away for Jerusalem. You aren't going back there for 70 years, he said to them. Now, what he says to you in terms of the length of time you are aware uh, you are puzzled by, I can't say. But I put you in Babylon, he says to them, for a reason. Don't waste a single moment. Look back on what you used to, or rather looking back on what you used to be. Use your energies to make your life better now. Well, it's great advice. The will of God is not a destination. It's a journey. Where you are at this moment is not necessarily where you will be for all time. Well, there's much more that could be um, could be said. But if you are discontent with ideas like it's always easy and dangerous to play the if only game. If only I get married, I'll be happy. If only I get a job, I'll be happy. If only I graduate from college, I'll be happy. If only I have children, I'll be happy. If only we can retire, we'll be happy. If only I can make more money, I'll be happy. If only I win this case, I'll be happy. If only I move to a new home, then I'll be happy. If only I can climb this one last mountain, then I will be happy. But he says to the exiles in Babylon, I brought you here. Now flourish. Somewhere I read that when new inmates come to prison for the first time, they're given a crucial piece of advice. Keep your head where your seat is. If you spend your days thinking about the past or about what might have been, you'll lose focus on where you are and you're liable to do something stupid that will get you in even worse trouble. You have to live in the present, not the past or in the future. Coming to grips with reality. Three things he called them to do. To acknowledge, I can't go back, I can't stay here, I must go forward. Well, God bless those brave souls who embrace reality with courage, who accept the past for what it is, and who move forward with energetic faith in God. So what's the bottom line? You are where you are by the sovereign choice of God. It may not be where you end up, it may not be where you will always be, but God is sovereign. You can serve the Lord where you are right now. 
You can glorify the Lord where you are right now. If you complain, you are attacking the Lord, not serving him. So the question comes down to this. Do you believe in God or don't you? Do you believe God will give you what you need right now so that you can serve him right where you are? There's a sense in which when you complain and dwell in discontentment, at that point, you no longer believe in God. That is, on one level, you certainly do believe in God, but by your discontent and complaining, you're denying the truth you claim to believe. If you can't do everything um, you would like to do, you can joyfully accept your situation as being from the hand of the Lord. You can always pray. You can always praise. You can always sing in your heart to the Lord. You can always refresh yourself in the streams that flow forth from the heart of God. Bloom where you're planted. That's what he told his children in exile. Serve the Lord right where you are. Stop moping. Don't live in the past or the future. Let God define your life, not earthly circumstances. Don't expect change to make you happy and never forget that you won't be here forever. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus and through him growing closer to God day by day. If we know God in Christ, then we are of all people most blessed and highly favored. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3 assures us of just that. And if we don't know Christ, then the rest of life won't satisfy our deepest longings anyway. Christ must be the center of life or else the circumference will never satisfy. Circumstances, even happy ones, can never replace the soul's longing for the Lord. Well, seen in that light, discontentment, if you are a... a a resident of that particular place is a grievous sin because it's an attempt to overthrow God. It is an attack on the sovereign who sits on the throne of the universe. When you complain against the Lord, you're repeating Satan's mistake. It's the first great rebellion played out in your own heart and you will not be any more successful than Lucifer was. So consider if I am in Jerusalem, I will serve him in Jerusalem. If I am in Babylon, I will serve him in Babylon. This is true no matter where you are. Canby, Woodburn, Beaverton, Portland, Scapoose, or anywhere else on God's green earth, you can still serve him. It's not about geography. It's about the heart. So on this Thanksgiving, if you wrestle with discontent, consider those things. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you which you bestowed in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Psalm 31, 19. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 95, 1 through 6. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with, with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. He is God. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 107.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 145, they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing 
of your righteousness. First Chronicles 16, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And first Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Give thanks always. Pray without ceasing. Be joyful in every circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you'll join us again right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.